today I'm gonna make this tandem coffee roasters coffee from Portland. It has flavors of grapefruit, blackberry, molasses. Yeah, smells delicious. Let's do it. I was really psyched to learn that one of my favorite bands, Local Natives, who was actually on season one of this podcast, had collaborated with one of my favorite artists, Sharon Van Etten. They collaborated a few months back on a song called Lemon and even made a really sweet video at the LA River for it as well. Well, one morning, I posted a story on Instagram to share my music discovery and was very pleased to get a note back from Sharon thanking me for the shout out. So I took a chance and I asked her if she liked coffee and if she wanted to be on my podcast. And she responded with a picture of her Sunday morning coffee. Got the water going, the sun's out. Welcome back to My Caffeine Withdrawal. I'm really excited about today's guest, Sharon Van Etten. Now, I didn't tell Sharon at the time of this Instagram exchange, but her last album, Remind Me Tomorrow, had been one of my very favorites of 2019 and on repeat in my car for quite a few months. I especially loved the last song, Stay, and of course, Seventeen. Ugh, they're both so good. In today's chat, we cover so much from Sharon first getting into music, and we learn a little bit about her time in Nashville, including leaving an abusive relationship and eventually making her way to New York City to really pursue her music career. We also learn a little bit about her acting career and her interest in psychology. But of course, I had to know first thing what her coffee of choice was this morning. All right, there we go. So I see you with your coffee. Will you tell me about what coffee you're drinking? Yes. I basically drink coffee all day. I've been obsessed with Joshua Tree coffee. Okay. Their blend Breakfast Bliss. One of the last shows I played was at Pappy and Harriet's at the end of 2019. And we stayed there the night and a friend of mine recommended that I go to this coffee shop. And I loved it so much. I bought a bag and now I get a subscription for about... Five pounds a month, but I think we're going to need to up the dose. (laughs) You're drinking that much coffee in quarantine. You got (laughs) it. What are you drinking? Blue Bottle's been like the one I've been drinking the last couple weeks. Their holiday blend is really good, and it's pretty close to me, so I'll go and get their beans and make like a pour-over. But actually now I, I switched over to tea before this conversation. Okay. Yeah, sometimes, especially... For some reason during this quarantine, I've been getting more and more into some teas. And this one's from this place in Nashville called High Garden. And I used to spend more time in Nashville and I I just really liked their tea. And it's supposed to be like daily strength. So it's supposed to be sort of medicinal. And I just figure with coronavirus, you know, I'm trying to like take all my vitamins and stay hydrated and all of that. You know, how do you guys make your coffee? Do you do like a Chemex? 
Well, I mean, if it was just me, I would do a pour over. But since it's two of us and it's constant, we found a bun, you know, B-U-N-N. Okay. But the process is interesting because pour overs are a preferred method. But when we talk about the water being too hot when you boil it over or when you do like a normal coffee maker because it actually kills the coffee <laughs> and destroys a lot of the flavor and there's this one model where you put in a lot of water and you just boil it and then it simmers and then when it's done simmering then you pour in more water and it's like water displacement oh wow so it's like a pour over but for a coffee maker there's also a burner so it could keep it warm but we usually end up putting it in like a thermos because we don't want it to burn. Yeah. <laughs> Diners have it. All right, cool. I'd love to talk about like how you discovered music and maybe writing and being a creative person. Like I know you grew up in New Jersey. So maybe tell me a little bit about like where you grew up and that sort of discovery. Okay. Well, up until sixth grade, I lived in Nutley, New Jersey, which is kind of like a Sopranos town. Okay. <laughs> I loved it so much. I have my fondest memories there. And I was able to walk to my elementary school. I'm one of five kids, so it was quite a parade by the time we entered <laughs> second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, because it was about four of us going to school at the same time or something. But the music program there was amazing. And it was a public school called Yanaka. And I was able to receive free lessons from third grade on. And I got violin lessons like one year and then clarinet the next year. And I liked that. So I took it a couple years. And then in sixth grade, I got to do choir. And it was all part of the school, like extracurricular programming. That's just when I knew I was attracted to it. Also, another part I forgot is I actually started on piano because we lived in this really old Victorian house on the corner of Prospect and Vreeland. I will never forget it. The top of the hill. And it came with this grand piano. It was so out of tune, but the people that lived there before didn't want to move it. But we had it in our living room and I gravitated towards it. And my mom's story is that when we first moved in, they couldn't find me. And they followed my voice and I was lost under the piano. You know, I thought everyone had left when they were just the chaos of moving in. And she said, ever since you had a funny relationship with the piano. But then when I moved, because my mom, she was a full-time mom up until I was in sixth grade, five kids, all two years apart. My mom went to night school that whole entire time. And by the time I was in sixth grade, she got her master's in teaching and became a teacher. And we moved when she got a job in Hunterdon County, which is near Clinton, New Jersey. And that's more of like a Bridges of Madison County vibe. Okay. And when we moved, there wasn't really a music program at the elementary school that I transferred to. So I got sidetracked with like assimilating and getting into sports and I even dabbled in cheerleading oh wow <laughs> by the time I got into high school I went back into choir and I did musicals and that's kind of how I got back into music my dad was a vinyl head and he still has all the original vinyls from when he was a kid so rolling stones the kinks jethro tull the beatles neil young bob dylan all the classics and 
my mom was more into folk, so she liked Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell, and she liked country, like Mary Chapin Carpenter, and classical music and opera and she took me to my first musicals in New York and my dad took me to my first concert which was Amy Mann opening up for the Kinks when I was oh my god that's incredible in elementary school my parents alone were very influential but then my siblings you can imagine we all had very different tastes but it helped me be well-rounded so I'm like the middle of five and my older brother was like Mr. 80s, 90s. And so he gave me my first Nine Inch Nails tape. So Pretty Hate Machine was the first tape he ever gave me. And he was into Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Megadeth, Iron Maiden, Alice in Chains, like going on to like Jim Blossom's Soul Asylum and Nirvana and all that stuff. And my older sister was more into alternative and the Lemonheads were huge for us. Juliana Hatfield, Blur... Um, Mazzy Star. She gave me Maz. Well, I stole her Mazzy Star. I'm sorry, Jess. <laughs> then my little sister Laura was super into pop, so she was into Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and Sync, that kind of stuff. And then my little brother Pete was into Tom Petty, Traveling Wilburys. Those are the big ones for him, like Tom Petty. But he's super into soul and funk and. Both of my brothers were drummers as well, so they're into, like, funky beats and jam bands and stuff. Cool. Yeah, so, like, the whole gamut. Yeah, you really got, like, a whole full education (laughs) at home, I guess. (laughs) Do you remember the musicals you were in in high school, and did you have a favorite part that you ever got to play? Well, I didn't have a part until my senior year because I was always in the chorus. (laughs) And I always had the worst costumes. Like, I still remember I was in Camelot and I had this really ugly emerald green dress. I just hated it so much. (laughs) But then my favorite one was West Side Story. And it was my senior year and it was my first speaking, my only speaking role ever. I was anybody's, the tomboy that wanted to be part of the gang. And so my big line was, Riff, Riff, I was a smash in that fight. I was murder. <laughs> my opening line after they sing like their, their officer song. So That's awesome. But it was, you know, we got to dance and stuff and I did dance growing up. So I, it was like the only time I ever incorporated that into anything I've done. I miss that kind of stuff, but I'm not as good anymore, so. (laughs) Yeah, I noticed you'd been doing some acting, and I was curious if that was something that's always sort of been in you. I I mean, the first one I saw was the OA. That was my first. Yeah, how did that come about? I was always, you know, up until I had a music career, I love film. You know, I love TV. I love comedy. I love the feeling of an audience being in an audience, but I never had any grand plan. Mm -hmm. Performing was always just something that I was driven to do, not having any idea where it could go. I want to play, I want to play, I want to play. But acting was never like that. You know, it was like choosing where I was going to go to school after high school. And my original thought was I would be on Broadway. Mm. But then I ended up going to Tennessee to go to school at Middle Tennessee State for recording production technology. I didn't get past one year because I just wasn't really into college. (laughs) Yeah, was it just like classes and you just wanted to be working on music? Yeah, I didn't realize that you had to take all that stuff again. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) And then it distracted me from the goal because I I did well in high school. I was 
almost straight A, good GPA, decent SAT. And I was distracted by music. And so I thought that would help me focus if I was suddenly going to school for music. But I didn't realize that I had to take all that again. And then I fell in love with an emo kid. And then (laughs) he was in a band. And so that kind of from going to playing open mics and hanging out at coffee shops to going to clubs. Like I never, I hadn't really been to like a club. I've been to huge concerts with my parents and the occasional like firehouse show. Like I didn't ever really go to a club when I was in high school in the suburbs of New Jersey that didn't really exist. And New York felt really far away from me even though it wasn't. I learned more about the scene that way. And then I started hearing more about what was happening in the Murfreesboro Nashville scene. Then I got a job at a coffee shop that put on shows with touring bands. And then I got turned on to more of the indie scene by the employees that I worked with and by the bands that passed through. The relationship I was in wasn't very healthy. And he was abusive and an addict and it ended up making me leave Tennessee ultimately and he also wasn't supportive of my music so I had to only I had to play in private and write in private and I would only play out when he was on tour (laughs) so it wasn't until I left that I realized that it was still something I wanted to do so at this time you weren't necessarily thinking of it as like this is my job. Yeah, it was something for me to get out emotions. I felt like I couldn't talk to anybody about my situation. I cut myself off from my family during that time. My only connection to the outside world was working at this cafe called the Red Rose. They were my family and there a lot of the employees there were are still my friends today that I see when I'm in Nashville and they knew like Whenever my ex was out of town, they would ask me to open up for bands, and they were supportive, but in this way, knowing that it wasn't okay between me and my ex. And after a while, it just messes with you, and the only way I could leave safely was to go back home. I went back home, and I lived with my parents for a year, and they told me that I could live with them as long as I went to therapy I got a part-time job, and I went back to school. So I did those three things, and I lived with them for a year. And after a year, I got the confidence to move to New York. And I got a job at a wine store, Astor Wine, which is a great store. Oh, I've been there. Yeah, I lived in New York for like 10 years. That's where I moved um, first. Okay, where are you? But, but you're in L.A. now? Yeah, I'm originally from Nebraska. And then I moved to New York City, and I lived there for like 10 years, and then just four years ago moved here to LA but I had been coming to LA a lot so it felt it wasn't like a super strange transition or anything so anyway I jumped around but I didn't really pursue music until I moved to New York and then once I decided that was what I wanted to do I was super driven and like things gradually fell into place but that was from 2005 and my first record didn't come out until like four years later. (laughs) Mm. So it took four years for me to kind of get the confidence. And I was already mid 20s, which is late these days for music. But now it's just funny because after making Are We There, I knew that I wanted to take a break. And that's when I decided to go back to school for psychology because I had never finished. And I had only gone to college for about a year and a half at that point. So here I am, my early 30s, like, gonna pause touring go back to school big emotional kind of goodbye to my band saying whenever I'm ready to tour again I'll call you you know yeah 
Um, but I need to focus on my relationship and my life and my like what's ahead for me. Was it just because it was like kind of the end of this tour and album cycle or was it a gradual change or was there something specific where you're like, okay, now I want to kind of shift things? I think touring for 10 years was the grind is pretty intense. And from touring for a year and a half and then making a record and, you know, writing and recording within six months to then do it again. No one was putting the pressure on me. That's just how I learned to survive in New York and as a musician. But at a certain point, I just, I didn't really know what I was doing anymore, you know, and I felt like I was going through the motions. And even though I wrote these songs that I deeply felt, there were days where I performed where I felt so disconnected from the songs. And I questioned why I was still singing these songs that were so dark and so separate from where I was. All the pain that I was writing about was for this self-fulfilling prophecy of not having a healthy relationship because I'm doing music and I don't feel understood, but I'm also running away from it by by pursuing this career because you can't settle down when you're doing something like this in the way that I'm doing. But then at the same time, I was meeting all these fans that thought I had all the answers and they would feel compelled to tell me stories because I love going to the merch table. I love hearing stories. I love connecting. And some days it's amazing. And some days it's so heavy that I just feel like I'm not certified. But I'm interested in understanding this connection that people have and why they think they know you through your music. Yeah. And it means a lot to me that people do feel like they know me because that is a huge part of me. I realized that I wanted to understand it more. And so that's what made me take a break, focus on my relationship. I ultimately went back to Brooklyn College. But then just as I got accepted, I got asked to audition for the OA, completely out of the blue. The casting director apparently saw me open up as a duo for Nick Cave in 2013. So I was like, so your mental Rolodex was going back two years ago and thought of me for this character. And I almost didn't take it because I was just kind of like, well, no, of course I can't do that. I just made this huge proclamation to my band and to the world that I'm going back to school for psychology because I want to do this thing. Like I would look like a phony if I auditioned and accepted and all this stuff. And I went back and forth for a while and called a lot of my friends and family like, completely confused by this choice so I auditioned not thinking that I got it and then they called me the next day saying you got it and it's like well shit okay I guess I'll do that so I did both (laughs) sorry that was so long-winded but I felt like there's a lead up there (laughs) (laughs) no it all makes sense to me it's so interesting like you were saying that the casting director had to have seen you so many years earlier it's I feel like sometimes you never know how things are going to affect you in your career in the future. And it's funny because that's almost a tour I didn't take. Mm. But, you know, when you start going back and you're like, if I had made a different choice, but that, that wouldn't have happened and that wouldn't have happened. So it's just the paths we take. Yeah. <laughs> to go back to you being in New York, starting to take it really seriously, how did you know that things were starting to work out. When I decided to move to New York, I reached out to two friends that I had met in Tennessee that I knew had moved out there. Mm. My friend Taylor, who used to work at um, Digital Planet. Did you know that place in Nashville? 
I don't think I've been there. So he worked at the record store in Murfreesboro, and I worked at the venue, so I'd flyer there all the time, and he would tell me, like, new releases that he was into, and we just kind of traded advice. And then my other friend, Alicia, who was on the management side, so she was, like, label side, MTSU, and she went on to work at Fat Cat Records and was eventually hired by Ben Goldberg at Bada Bing Records. And so we were catching up in New York when I first moved there, and she was telling me about this band Beirut that they were working with and how they were taking off and that they needed help. And I said, do you think I could volunteer and help you? She's like, you mean like an intern? And I I never heard that word before. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. I'd love to be an intern. Sure. She's like, okay, I'll ask. And so while I was working at the wine shop, I was also interning at the label. And then eventually they asked if I wanted to be hired part-time. So then it like kind of switched and I was part-time at both. It got to the point where I was getting tour offers and stuff and I couldn't keep my job. But The owner was so supportive, he just said, you can work from the road if you want. And then it got to the point where he just asked to release one of my records. And, you know, he released my second record. And he helped me record the first one with a friend of his. So, like, that was, like, the first signs where, well, someone that actually cares about what I'm doing and they want to help me. Yeah. And it felt really organic. Like, that was one of the first signs. And then also during that time... I got asked if I would do like a residency at Zebulon and I they just let me book my own shows there. I've played to rooms where it's like, I'm psyched to get an 11 o'clock gig on a Monday night where everyone's just doing blow and people are playing pool and <laughs> yeah. I'm just playing acoustic guitar and nobody's listening, but I was asked to be here, so it's okay, you know, yeah. and like no one's there for you. They're there for the last band and you can't even hear your guitar over the audience. You know, they say paying your dues or whatever, but that that shaped me like no other. But when I got asked to play at Zebulon, that was my first real family where they let me curate my own shows, bring bands in, and I saw my audience grow. And I would look up and I would see all the employees, like they wouldn't even make drinks while I was playing. I just looked up front and there'd be people sitting on the floor and crying, you know. That for me was like, I think I'm doing something right. Yeah, just hearing you describe that, I'm like, that's such a special feeling, something kind of magical to make people want to just stop like that. When you were talking about working at the record label, I was just thinking how cool that is because I feel like me included a lot of artists sometimes struggle with the more like business side of things and like making the right decisions and all of that and having that experience early on working someplace did you learn anything there that you've been able to sort of carry through as far as the more business aspect I learned a lot I'm grateful for seeing behind the scenes like what it takes to get a record out and just to get it heard Just the amount of emails you send out to try to get people to review an album, let alone just to listen to it. (laughs) Like, did you get it? You know, to respond, you know, and I just felt like I would be working on music I love so much and that nobody cared. And so it can be disheartening. But then you see the people that are in it for so long and they're still doing it, knowing all that. I think that sometimes as an artist, even now with having all that experience, there are times where it feels like a runaway train and that 
once you do a record, it's like everybody knows what to do and they take it and they run with it. And you think you're out of control of the situation. But really, what our job is is sometimes to rein everybody else in. And we forget we do have that power. But it's like to choose those moments when to do that, when it feels like you're out of control or that you're not being heard. Because people get excited. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Lemon, the song you did with local natives. Like, I love that band. And actually, I had them on um, this show before. I heard that. I love those yeah, guys. They're the yeah, they're sweetest. <laughs> they're so sweet. And it was funny because I first, I mean, we've played shows over the years together with festivals and stuff. We have so many mutual friends. But, you know, when you meet somebody in that kind of setting, it's hard to really get to know them. And two years ago, we were in California, and I was about to make my record. I didn't know it yet, but I was shooting for the OA, but not shooting as much as I thought, had a lot of time on my hands, and my publisher reached out to see if I want to do some writing with them. And I said, well, sure, yeah, that sounds really fun. And they had a studio in Atwater, and we just sat and played together, and they had some ideas that they needed help finishing and asked if I would want to help with that. And it's like a nerve-wracking situation to be in, you know? But they're all just super welcoming and open and made me feel like I was in a safe space to share ideas and crazy to think about how much time has passed since then. <laughs> and then what led you guys to the decision to release that during quarantine and all of that? Or I think that, you know, he's had a record because I came in to do the vocal on that song. Like, I didn't even know after we worked on it that that would be come a song or anything. I just said, okay, I think I did like a little doo-doo-doo and like <laughs> to make a bridge or something. And I, I didn't think anything of it. And then like a year later, he's like, it's a song. I'm like, what? How did that happen? Yeah. But Taylor reached out and just said, we're going to be in the studio. Will you come and do some vocals? And, and they were actually like working with someone that I had kind of known in New York. So I came in and did harmonies for it. And um, I didn't realize I was going to be taking a whole verse until I went to the studio. Studio. Yeah, and then he said, if we do a video, would you be down to do it? And I was like, well, yeah, sure. Just let me know when. And that didn't come until quarantine. But we had done the vocals before that. So the, the record was pretty close to being done. And then all this happened. So they were planning on having something out. But then when it came time to make the video, obviously, the subject, the narrative was definitely about alluding to this yeah I loved the video yeah they did a really really beautiful job they had a great team on that video yeah so tell me about moving from New York to LA how did that shift like how you write and what made you decide to leave New York I lived in New York for about 15 years and I remember the reason I moved to New York was because I knew that I needed my ass kicked and I knew that I needed to be around other people that were very motivated because I need that kind of energy around me to be motivated myself. Um, not in a competitive way. I've never been competitive, but like I'm the kind of person like if everyone's chilling, I'm probably going to be chilling. I'm a herd person, I guess, maybe just because <laughs> I'm from a big family. But I, I know that about myself and my nature. And so I had to challenge myself, though, too, because I do have like social anxiety that I've learned to manage over the years. But... I knew that it was important if I really wanted to do music and take it seriously because there's not many places you can live to do it. So I'm glad that I did it. But then I finally was in a relationship. I had a kid and 
we had like one bedroom apartment we couldn't pay any more like to get a two-bedroom apartment and have no outdoor space I just I was like what kind of a life will this be and also like I had this practice space which the my friend that ran it is amazing but like I was in a basement and it flooded and it smelled and there were rats and there was like exhaust coming out from the restaurant I'm working so hard but I was finally to the point where I was like okay now I just want to enjoy what I worked so hard for but then also with acting and um, I'm trying to figure out how to do more work without being on tour, which, <laughs> ha ha. <laughs> now you really get um, to practice that because <laughs> you don't have okay. the option. Yeah. <laughs> Challenge accepted, universe. Um, do you find even with the slower pace and then especially slower pace because of this do you find it difficult or easier well you know there's always the challenge of switching gears because I am a mom and there are domestic duties and my partner's job is definitely more demanding as far as having a schedule and having meetings and having calls and I tend to not schedule more than one thing a day (laughs) because my days tend to be shorter with um the little guy and groceries and meal planning and all that stuff. I feel lucky that it is in the garage that I can be like, all right, I'm leaving the house. I'm going into this other space and now I'm going to work. But like giving yourself the permission to just think. You don't have to write. You don't have to sing. You don't have to make anything amazing today. Everyone moves so fast and like everyone's on their phone and on their news and listening to music. And it's just... I think that was part of the book also, the Lori Gottlieb book we were talking about before, where she's like, it's only in therapy where for an hour you're alone with your thoughts. This is the closest thing that you have with your thoughts is someone sharing them with you and helping you talk about it. You know, I guess it's a form of meditation, except with meditation, you're not supposed to think. But there are days where it's like I just sit and I have no idea what I'm going to do. Yeah. Sorry, that was a wander. But. No, I think that makes total sense to me. But you seem so motivated. I mean, to have a podcast and to to be able to do them weekly, that takes drive. Because I thought about doing a podcast before, but I'm just like, I wouldn't be organized. I couldn't do it. You know, I was like, I wouldn't even know how. <laughs> I'm not that centered. <laughs> you definitely could. But I do the same thing. And I've kind of just gotten to where I just give myself permission to like one day I might have a lot of things to say or like be very productive like working on this podcast or working and then some days I'm like I just do nothing but then I think that the nothing time helps me figure out what's going to be important for the time when I feel like I do have something to create or when I do have to like work on an audition or I like having that time to sort out thoughts that makes sense to me that you have days where you're just like I just want to sit there with my thoughts All right, so I think I just have one more question. If you could interview a favorite artist or favorite actor or anything and have coffee with them, like dream coffee date, I guess. (laughs) That's tough. Yeah. It's a tie between PJ Harvey and Bill Murray. Okay. (laughs) I'll say PJ Harvey because I just, I want to know more about her. I don't know. I feel like we we have a lot in common. Hmm. And is there a particular coffee shop you would go to? or There's a really cute one up the street called Little Ripper for me. Oh, um, yeah. That's yeah. really close to me, too. Oh, no way. But yeah, I have some friends who have been talking about that, and I still haven't gone. Yeah, yeah. It's run, it's run by a really sweet Australian couple. And mm. I feel bad because I just 
I make coffee at home, and so I'll buy a bag of theirs occasionally. I try to support them and get their sandwiches and stuff because they have a, a wonderful avocado, Sammy. <laughs> All right. Well, did you want to sing something today, or? Let's see. What would I do? Let's see. Oh, that's cool. Guitar. You know, it's just an it's an electric hollow body, but but we'll see. Okay. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you. I appreciate you asking. I love your spirit and oh, thank what you. you do. Yeah, it was really good to get to know you a little better. One of the things that has really stuck with me since chatting with Sharon for this episode was when she talked about booking one of her first acting gigs on the OA. If you remember from the conversation, she explained how a casting director saw her in 2013 opening for Nick Cave and then two years later thought of her for a part on the OA. I know I've been feeling lately and maybe some of you creative people feel the same way sometimes. Hmm, how does all of these things that I'm doing, all of these projects I'm working on, how do they fit in? 
even when I'm thinking about this very podcast or maybe I write a song one day or I work on an audition and I'll end up feeling like, okay, I'm being creative, I'm working on something, but I don't really know where it leads or if it leads anywhere. And I think what's so difficult but also magical about this kind of career is that you just don't know. I don't know how a song I write might lead to some other opportunity or I don't know who exactly the song will reach. I don't know if when I audition for something and then don't get the part, if maybe that audition will still lead to some other opportunity two years later. You have to sort of just follow whatever the next right step is and focus on the creating and being in the present moment. I guess I've found that I have to believe that I'm being led to what I want or need or maybe even something better than I could even imagine. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and if you did, be sure to rate and subscribe. We also have a Facebook group where we can talk about music and coffee all the time or send me a message on Instagram. I love hearing from you. I linked a bunch of the stuff we talked about in this podcast below, including a few book recommendations and also Did you know I have my very own coffee now? So I linked that in the show notes as well if you want to try a new Emily Kinney coffee. So yeah, enjoy. Thanks for listening in this week and thanks for helping me to cure my caffeine withdrawal.